0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're living in a new age of huge wildfires driven by climate.
1: We have been altering the earth, including the atmosphere, ever since the last glaciation ended. But the whole process went on afterburners when we began burning fossil fuels. Our tools haven't changed much, but the fires have.
2: Through a good part of my career, the time when fire burned was mostly during the daytime and then there would be opportunities to do fire suppression at night. Now some
0: big fires burn 24 hours a day. So how do we make our landscapes and communities resilient to fire?
3: We need to make sure that when the fires reach communities, which they will, that communities are protected, that homes don't burn, that people and their animals can evacuate safely and they have the assistance to do that.
0: Before we get into today's show about how to better live with wildfire, we're continuing our weekly look at the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow next month. The Paris Climate Agreement requires all partner countries to declare Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs, basically every country's voluntary plan for getting off fossil fuels. The plans need to show that their climate targets are in line with the international goal of limiting global warming to under 2 degrees Celsius and ideally under 1.5 degrees. But as a recent IPCC report showed, most countries are far from delivering on their promises. What does that say about the effectiveness of NDCs in bending the carbon curves? Climate One correspondent Aman Azar reports. Nationally determined contributions, or
4: NDCs, are an important tool under the Paris Agreement. But the latest synthesis report by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change says that most nations are long way off from their climate targets and must redouble their efforts to limit global temperature rise. And so, some are asking how useful NDCs really are as a tool for meeting the Paris goals. First of
2: all, NDCs aren't good enough. You know, we had a recent report from the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, That drew heavily from um, the work of the science saying that we're on a pathway to 2.7 degrees temperature increase by the end of the century, which is nowhere near the 2 degree or even 1.5 degree goal of the Paris Agreement. That's Kelly Kazaya,
4: Vice President for Global Climate at the National nonprofit Environmental Defense
2: Fund. And then the second thing I think we've learned is that to be credible, NDCs must not only be set, but they must be implemented. They have to be translated into on-the-ground action.
4: Kaveh Khilinpour, vice president of the Centre for Climate and Energy Solutions, says another part of the problem is the way countries have set out to pursue their climate ambitions within their national settings, which affects countries' ability to achieve climate targets.
5: Many NDCs still don't cover the entire economy of the countries that have submitted them. Aside from increasing the ambition of targets on paper, what the Paris Agreement does require countries to do is to put in place the domestic policies to try to deliver those targets and achieve them. And at the moment, there's a very big lag between what countries are promising and the the policies they put in place to deliver them.
4: One of the proposals making the rounds in global environmental circles of late is changing presently non-binding nationally determined contributions into binding commitments. COP is a global climate summit and provides a critical platform for the world leaders to showcase their ambitions and agree on long-term measures necessary to reverse the adverse climate trends. Kaveh Kilanpur says that holds promise for enhanced NDC's ambitions and their implementation.
5: At COP26, world leaders will gather, I think, to uh, to discuss things like climate ambition on the first day of the meeting. So hopefully we'll see a very important political signal coming from that event. I think the second thing that the COP is about is bringing together uh, leading companies, uh, non-state actors, cities and others who are responsible for implementation in the real world, for taking climate action forward. And that third element of the COP is about the sort of housekeeping and nuts and bolts of, uh, of delivering on the Paris Agreement itself.
4: With pressure mounting on governments globally to deliver on their climate promises, the spotlight will be on the political leadership at COP26 to showcase enhanced ambitions and follow through with concrete actions to turn those into achievable goals. For Climate One in Washington, D.C., this
0: is Aman Azhar. We've experienced yet another summer of record wildfires in the western U.S., endangering lives, displacing communities and sending unhealthy, disgusting smoke across the nation. The science is clear. Human-caused climate disruption is making lands more conducive to burning, and much of the world is increasingly living in flammable landscapes. Forest experts say there are tools to help reduce the risk of catastrophic fires, keep forests alive as valuable carbon sinks, and make communities more resilient to megafires. Stephen Pine spent his youth as a hotshot jumping from planes to fight fires on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Now an emeritus professor at Arizona State University, he's written several fire histories of different parts of the world. His latest book is The Pyrocene How We Created an Age of Fire and What Happens Next. Pine says a simple way to conceptualize this history is to think about it as three
1: fires. The first fire appears when plants begin colonizing continents. So we have fossil charcoal that dates back over 420 million years. So as soon as plants are there, we have fire, and the Earth has never left it that fire. But then a couple of million years ago, uh, some creatures appeared, the hominins, who had the ability to start and maintain fire and interact with it. In various ways and that gives rise to what i think of as a second fire And you know, we often speak of a second nature the way human artifice has remade first nature into a new kind of landscape and that's really what what fire is about we begin domesticating fire we use it for all kinds of things for aboriginal economies for agriculture we now have a species monopoly over fire so we are a uniquely fire creature the Earth is the only planet we know with fire on a uniquely fire planet. And we have been altering the Earth at a large scale, including the atmosphere, ever since the last glaciation ended. But the whole process went on afterburners when we began burning fossil fuels or what I think of as lithic landscapes. Because all of our fire practices in, in, of second fire all had ecological checks and balances. There are barriers and buffers. But when we go to third fire and we begin going into lithic landscapes, all those old checks and balances are gone. And at that point, the whole process has, has broken the boundaries. And our, our human quest for fire has normally been one about finding things to burn and new ways to burn it to get things out of that. But now the prob- there's There's plenty to burn. There's too much to burn. The problem is the sinks. We can't put all of the waste products. So we're unhinging the atmosphere. We're affecting the oceans and hydrology generally. We're certainly affecting the earth's biotas. So my sense is that when you add all of these fire practices together, both in living and lithic landscapes, we're creating the fire equivalent of an ice age.
0: So what I heard from that is that there, there was sort of natural fire um, burning things on the surface. And the change really became when we began to dig things out of the ground, coal and oil, and burn them. And, you know, fire has played a role in the cycles of creation and extinction uh, throughout geologic history. Do you think that fire is playing a role in human extinction?
1: I mean, in some ways, our unique capability as a creature is fire. So if we create a world with more fire, you would think we would be privileging ourselves, but we've created a runaway fire in the sense that it could lead to our own extinction. There are really good fires and bad fires, and we make that distinction. We made a pact, a kind of alliance with fire long ago, even before we were a species, a distinct species. And we agreed to each expand the domain of the other, which we've done. I mean, we've even taken fire to Antarctica. We use fire to go off planet. But that mutual assistance pact is looking more and more like a Faustian bargain. And we were made by good fire, and we may very well be unmade by bad fire.
0: You know, we hear these days a a lot about uh, so-called cool burns uh, that indigenous people started as a way of stewarding the lands on which they live. Tell us about Aboriginal fire and also how that might relate to other elements such as air, water and earth.
1: So how did people for so long live with fire? And why are the megafires that we see around the planet now, these really feral flames that are, you know, blasting over what appeared to be mature countries. Why are they limited to developed countries? It is really a pathology of a fossil fuel civilization. And not only because that affects climate, but it also affects how we live on the land, how we organize our landscapes, how we get our power and the rest of it. So how did we do it before? Uh, In many ways, uh, fire is a relationship. It's not just a tool. Uh, it requires tending. It requires training. Uh, there's an argument to be made that fire is our first domestication because it required a change in our behavior. It's not just something we can use and walk away from. Without consequences, we we are engaged in in a relationship. So there are seasonal considerations. There are terrain considerations. Fire burns better uphill than down. Um, there are biological considerations. What kind of fire do you get? Do you get a surface fire like across a savanna, or are you going to get fires that na- naturally go into the crowns and burn to really high intensity that you probably don't want a lot of? So you have a lot of control, particularly if fire already exists in that landscape. You can take over that landscape by changing the timing and placement of fires. And there's a lot of evidence that people have done this. But then we begin changing the structure of fuels, of stuff to burn. And that's really, for me, what agriculture means. So we cut, dry, burn. uh, We drain peat. Um, We release domesticated animals, which alter the vegetation. We do all of these kinds of things, and it allows us to expand the realm of fire and our ability to interact with it. So all of this has gone on, and it's gone on for a very long time. But when we converted to fossil fuels, suddenly we forgot all of this. (laughs) And we decided we will use the power that burning fossil fuels gives us, and we will remake all of these habitats so that we can eliminate open fire. And in European intellectual history, there's a very strong animus against open fire. It is taken as a stigma of primitivism. You have to remove it to be modern, scientific, and enlightened.
0: Steve, you seem to be putting fossil fuels at the center of this change from having a relationship from f- with fire to using it as a tool and having from good fire to bad fire. We're moving toward a world where we want to electrify everything to stop burning oil and gas, fossil fuels. So what does that future look like where we stop burning fossil fuels? Will that restore a healthy and natural balance and relationship with fire? What does that look like?
1: let me be clear. I'm happy that my house is not filled with smoke and at risk from fire the way it would have been. I'm happy that cities don't have fires routinely running through them anymore. All of that, I think, could be considered an advance. But we tried to project that same set of conditions onto the countryside and then onto wildlands. And at that point, it has been disastrous because they need fire in many cases. They need the right kind of fire. And we completely disrupted it. We've shown we can disrupt, we have to show now that we can also manage. So if we could get the climate genie, if not in the bottle, then at least underground again, then what kind of fire scene could we expect in the planet? I would expect a lot more fire. One of the paradoxes of our current state is that despite all of these uh, mega fires, And sort of feral flames rampaging across the countryside, the amount of burning on the planet is actually declining. And this is because of the substitution of fossil fuels, primarily in agriculture and pastoral economies that are no longer using fire. So we have a very strange and limited view of how fire functions on the planet. And if we got the climate situation back under control, we could expect to see a lot more fire in our countrysides and certainly in our wildlands and nature preserves. And you
0: would call that the return of good fire, cool burns, whether would that be prescribed
1: burns, right? That's right. Normally, we think of good fire as, as light burns, cool burns, repeated frequent burns, not not these sort of eruptive burns. But there are some parts, I mean, there are some biotas that just burn by immolating their crowns, and then grow up out of the ashes. So there are, there are places where that kind of fire would return, say lodgepole pine, jack pine. But for the most part, what we would see is a lot more fire in whatever pattern is historically and ecologically sensible for it. And we would either be doing the burning or allowing the burning to proceed. And my guess is we would be doing most of it. I don't think we're willing to surrender too much control over it. And part of this is that, you know, this is in perpetuity. We are going to be forever the keeper of the flame.
0: This is interesting because what I'm hearing you say is that if we don't restore a healthy balance in the climate, we will see these large mega fires grow bigger and wilder. And if we do move away from fossil fuels, we also will see a future with more fire, healthy, cool fire. So either way, we're going to see more fire than we've artificially come to expect in recent history because we have suppressed it in a way that is not in keeping with the the grand sweep of the human story as you tell it.
1: That's right. So, I mean, California last year, I think, had four and a half million acres burned by fire. How much of that was really bad fire and how much of that good, we really don't have metrics for. Certainly, stuff that's burning through towns or over sequoia groves is not welcome. But we might very well uh, double or triple that in the future under a more Sustainable climate, but it would be of a different form. And the other thing we've we've created unrealistic expectations about is smoke. And right now, as part of these mega fires, we've had these mega palls. I mean, these giant smoke clouds, palls that are extending the range of fires' influence far beyond the flames themselves. The smoke would not go away in the future, but it would shift. So just as we would have good fires, we can have good smokes. Yeah, it would be nice if we didn't have any smoke, maybe. But we can live with the smoke in the same way we do pollen or other sort of seasonal, seasonal events. That can be managed. We're talking about a much smaller thing. But we have artificially cleaned our air from smoke from what it was historically.
0: Well this is a uh, mind shifting for me because I've lived in in California and the wildfires of the last 5 years have been disgusting and depressing to live through and I thought well you know if we are successful on climate we will stop these wildfires and we will have more blue skies like I'm used to and you're kind of Rocking my world here a little bit saying that smoke's gonna come back. And can you imagine fighting wildfires today without fossil fueled tools like tankers and ATVs? And are <laughs> are there alternatives in a world less dependent on fossil fuels?
1: Yeah. I mean that that's another one of our, our paradoxes. Here we are. Could we have imagined suppressing fire in the way we do or try to if we took away all of our airplanes and helicopters? We took away all of our bulldozers and engines, and we took away all our pumps and chainsaws. What kind of firefighting could we do? It would be preposterous. How was it that people were able to put fires out with burlap sacks and shovels? They were able to because the land was not erupting in fire the way we see it now.
0: As humans have lost touch with fire, as you've described, uh, and we're living in increasingly flammable landscapes because of climate change bringing higher heat and lower humidity, how should humans today and in the future live with fire?
1: Well, I think there are a number of things we can do. There's no reason we should have towns burning. I mean, we solved this problem a century ago, but then we forgot about it. We decided we didn't. it wasn't a problem anymore. We didn't have to pay attention. There's no reason for power lines to be starting fires under the worst conditions either. I mean, that's an infrastructure problem we've known has been around for decades. So we could stop our towns burning in a handful of years if we really chose to. The surrounding countryside is more complicated. There are a lot of things we can do. We've learned about it. There are mixtures of things. There's no one thing to do. People in the past were able to do it. Surely we can we can do as much as our ancestors if we chose to. This might take a few decades. And then we have to tackle the climate issue. And that's that's trickier. Uh, it's going to take longer. But unless we address it, all the other mitigations will be overwhelmed eventually.
0: Thanks for coming on Climate One today.
1: Well, thanks for the invitation.
0: Stephen Pine is author of The Pyrocene and an emeritus professor at Arizona State University. Coming up how climate has changed the kinds of fires we're now experiencing.
2: I started fighting fire in 1975, and the difference between fire behavior in the mid-70s and the fire behavior we're observing now because of longer burning periods and higher temperatures, drier fuels, is absolutely astounding.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. Our tools for managing fire haven't changed much in the last several decades, but our understanding of fire behavior in ecology and how that's changing due to climate continues to evolve. Sue Husari started her career in fire as a seasonal wildlands firefighter and hotshot, later taking positions in fire management with the National Park Service and US Forest Service. She's currently a member of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. Chad Hansen is an ecologist with the John Muir Project and author of Smokescreen, debunking wildfire myths to save our forest and our climate. Several fire experts we talked to described some of his views around logging as controversial. Climate One's Ariana Brocious spoke with them about the tools and strategies for living in this new age of wildfires.
6: Chad Hansen, much of your work focuses on opposing logging on public lands, not just clear-cutting, but even forest thinning projects. That's a position that puts you at odds with most fire ecologists who think that some logging can be beneficial to reduce wildfire risk. What's your rationale for that position?
3: Just to be clear, the, the scientific context on this is quite different than a lot of people I think uh, think or, or assume. Logging conducted under the rubric of thinning does not stop weather and climate-driven fires, and often... Uh, thinned areas burn more intensely, and so there is a broad base of scientific opinion opposing thinning. I think the main thing is a lot of people don't realize thinning is commercial logging. They hear the term thinning and they think of pruning shears. In reality, these are uh, intensive logging operations that kill and remove upwards of 60 or 70% of the trees in a given stand, including many mature and even old growth trees.
6: So Sue, you've had a lot of experience working on projects like this, and obviously in positions of fire management with National Park Service and U.S. Forest Service. What do you think about what Chad just said?
2: Well, it's one viewpoint uh, that he's representing. There are a wide variety of other viewpoints on thinning. Thinning covers a wide range of activities, and not all of thinning is intended to uh, reduce fire risk. And uh, it depends on how the land is characterized, what the tree species are, and all that sort of thing. Thinning, if conducted correctly, in combination with uh, treatment of surface fuels, where the residue from removal of the trees is, is removed or prescribed burn, is a practice conducted even in the national parks. Thinning is not always for the purpose of commercial logging. In many cases, it has to be subsidized if the trees are smaller and have no commercial value. So I think the situation is far more complex and nuanced than what Dr. Hansen just presented. So,
6: Chad Hansen, I know another aspect of logging that you are opposed to is what's called salvage logging. So, this is when trees are harvested for timber after a wildfire has occurred. Can you explain that position and and the research you've done related to salvage logging?
3: Sure, absolutely. You know, and first thing, just to, just to clarify, you know, uh, Sue is exactly right that uh, not all thinning is is the same. In some cases, we're talking about seedlings and saplings that are being removed. The, the main thing I'm trying to get across here is those are very rare exceptions. Uh, most of the time on national forest lands and certainly on private timberlands, thinning is, uh, is an, in, an industrial logging operation uh, that where most, uh, most of the trees are being killed and removed, including many mature and even old growth trees. Um, and in terms of post-fire logging, uh, I think one of the things that hasn't been recognized by a lot of land managers is the fact that according to hundreds, literally hundreds of scientific studies now, Post-fire habitats are some of the most ecologically valuable and biodiverse habitats in our forests. And that includes, and especially areas where fire burns hot, those high intensity fire patches. They create what we call snag forest habitat. These patches of of snags, these fire-killed trees, and all the wonderful native flowering plants that grow in naturally in the understory, stimulated by fire. And so salvage logging uh, damages that uh, incredibly um, incredibly important post-fire habitat that we call snag forest and that harms the species that depend on it.
6: Yeah, I think there's, in my estimation, a pretty widespread understanding that fire is a beneficial process in many ways for ecosystems and for forest ecology. The conflict, of course, occurs when those fires encroach on human habitation or human settlement and and our desire to uh, control them to some degree. So I do want to talk about natural fires, ones that start from lightning, for example. Sue, the Forest Service has for a long time had a position or a practice of near total suppression for even fires that were started Naturally, do you think that's the right approach? And have you seen a change in that approach in your career?
2: Well, uh, the Forest Service started developing uh, programs for natural fire use in, in wilderness uh, when I was in my twenties, really. So we're talking forty-five years ago. The full suppression policy, the ten a.m. policy, was in effect where all fires were suppressed before ten a.m. That was the policy was in effect prior to the beginning of my career. And the Forest Service and the Park Service position on management of lightning fires has, um, has evolved over the years. The names for this type of management have changed, of course, prescribed natural fire, managed lightning fire, all that sort of thing. But uh, all the federal agencies have engaged in some level of management of lightning fires for the length of my career. Not all areas of national forests are subject to this, but many wilderness areas are.
6: Yeah, let me follow up on that, because I think the understanding I have is that it's actually really difficult for some federal agencies to let natural fires burn for some of the reasons having to do with, you know, getting close to towns and property and things like that, or even just smoke. Do you think that that's the case? I mean, is there pressure on the agencies to to put them out all the time?
2: Well, there's always pressure because of smoke in particular. And there are a lot of areas where uh, letting natural fires burn is just not practical. Uh, It depends on the land classification for the Forest Service. Generally, um, areas that are being managed for for timber production, that's not an option. But there are large areas. Some of the pioneering programs to manage lightning fire uh, got started in the National Forest System, for example, in the uh, various wilderness areas up in uh, the northern part of the country. Of course, the earliest natural fire programs were in Yosemite National Park and Sequin Kings Canyon National Parks. Those have been in place for many, many years. But there are conflicting societal values that frequently make use of natural fire and also of prescribed fire difficult.
6: I want to invite Chad to respond here. So this is something, Chad Hansen, you have in your book. Uh, you discuss prescribed fire and what you see as some of the limitations of prescribed fire. Can you explain that?
3: Yeah, you know, first of all, and this I talk about this in my book, Smokescreen, is that prescribed fire can and will at least temporarily modify wildland fire behavior. And if a wildland fire you know, occurs a few years later or several several years later, you know, there's a period of time during which prescribed fire will modify that fire behavior. And I think that the, the problem is people make the assumption that if you do prescribe fire, it's either gonna stop a wildfire, which really you know, rarely if ever happens. And second, they make the assumption that The prescribed fire will dramatically modify the wildfire and for a very long period of time. And I think what we're really talking about is a matter of degree, and especially during more extreme fire weather, you know, drought conditions and hot, dry, windy weather that drives fires, you know, because wildfires are driven mostly by climate and weather. And uh, I think people make the assumption that prescribed fire is some kind of a landscape scale panacea, and it's not. The thing is people forget every time you do a prescribed burn, you're going to kill five to 10% of the trees on average, more like 10%, according to you know kind of a, a broader summary of the literature out there in the science. And um, if you're going to try to burn every five or 10 years, you're going to have an enormous amount of tree mortality and you're still going to have the wildland fire. Um, and uh, you, you certainly you'll modify it somewhat. But in those hot, dry, windy, drought conditions, you know it's not going to be uh, an enormous modification. So it's it's just important to realize that um, that you're not going to mimic you're not going to mimic the ecological value and benefits of a natural mixed intensity fire. Because the fact is, different wildlife species need different fire intensities. Some like areas that burn relatively cool and and relatively few trees are killed, and some like it hot.
6: Sue, so I want to have you weigh in here on prescribed fires because I know this is a practice that has gained a lot of traction, I think, in recent years or recent decades. So what's your view of the how effective it is as a tool responding to Chad's comments about, you know, that there are realities to setting deliberate fires. Uh, they have to occur occasionally at different times of year for the safety of those involved. They may be less high intensity than a natural fire. So what are your what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think Dr. Hansen is correct, but The effects of prescribed fires vary depending on what ecosystem you're operating in. In uh, some cases, we actually try to get crown involvement and tree mortality, such as in some jack pine stands and things like that in uh, the Northeast. In other areas, like where I worked in Everglades National Park, we had almost zero tree mortality, The amount of tree mortality that occurs from uh, prescribed burning varies on what age classes are in the stand. So how old are the trees? And so of course, small trees do tend to be killed in prescribed burns. Prescribed burning, which has been a big focus of my career, describes a whole range of uh, different activities from burning piles to broadcast burning, to uh, landscape level burning, and there is no no generalization that really describes it. The application is becoming more sophisticated. I think we're giving people better training, and uh, but we do all have to understand that there are risks associated with prescribed burning, both uh, from potential escapes, which do occur, but also uh, ecological impacts Chad Hansen? I think what's
3: important is to understand a couple of things that I I think have raised concerns about prescribed burning as a landscape scale approach. Uh, First of all, there's a troubling trend that's concerned a lot of ecologists um, in my field that um, oftentimes uh, logging is conducted beforehand and prescribed burning is uh, logging slash pile burning is being called prescribed burning. A lot of people think that's deceptive and it's giving the public something that is not what they expected they're getting. The other thing is that it's really, really key to understand that fire needs to happen during fire season in order to have the ecological relationships intact. If prescribed fire is done during fire season, you're gonna to tend to get more mixed intensity fire, and that's a good thing. But you can get that with lightning strikes and just not suppressing them, which we need more of. Um, when fire, prescribed fire is done outside of natural fire season, like in the early spring or in the late fall, what happens is, is that native species like native wood boring beetles, for example, they're not active outside of fire season. And so they can't colonize the fire like they've been doing for millions of years. And because the wood-boring beetles don't colonize, the woodpeckers have no food. Uh, because the woodpeckers eat the larvae of the wood-boring beetles in the fire-killed trees, and if the woodpeckers have no food, then they can't create nest cavities uh, for bluebirds and nuthatches and flying squirrels and, and chipmunks. And you disrupt a whole series of ecological relationships that I've been studying for twenty years.
6: So elsewhere in this episode, we talk with Stephen Pine, author of the book Pyrocene. And one of the things he highlights there is the uh, history of fire that has evolved with earth and with our human history as well, that really there was a lot more widespread fire than we're accustomed to in the last couple hundred years. So Susan, is it accurate to say that we're seeing more high severity fires now due to climate change?
2: Well, I've read the literature, but all I can speak from is my own personal experience. I started fighting fire in 1975. You know, hand crews. I worked on hot, hot crews and a whole variety of crews, and then uh, managed fires later. And the difference between fire behavior in the mid 70s and the fire behavior we're observing now, because of longer burning periods and higher temperatures drier fuels and this is apart from drought is absolutely astounding so the patches of high severity fire are larger and that's very well documented because we are we're able to do remote sensing and see that there's quite a bit in the literature regarding the potential that patches of high intensity fire are also larger than they were historically Because of the uniformity of forest stands, but also because of the conditions where fires can burn intensely 24 hours a day, whereas in my experience as a young firefighter and through a good part of my career, the time when fire burned was mostly during the daytime and then there would be opportunities to build direct line or do fire suppression at night or potentially burnouts. The length of the burning period now, especially on the Dixie Fire and the Calder Fire, which we're now experiencing, appeared to be close to 24 hours a day.
6: Chad Hansen, in your book, you write, In the era of climate change, we can no more stop weather-driven fires than we can stand on a ridge and fight the wind. So what should we do?
3: I think we need to fundamentally rethink our approach and we have so much more information so much more science now than we had historically um, We know now that weather and climate are dominant you know obviously fire needs something to burn you have to have vegetation to, to, to drive the flames but mostly it's really flames are driven by twigs and pine needles and leaves and really small diamond material what drives fire mostly are those hot dry windy conditions and, and drought situations. And we can't control those with air tankers and bulldozers or chainsaws. Um, we We just can't. So we need to pull back to our communities and focus our resources on saving homes and saving lives. We know we can do that effectively if we focus our resources there. We're not doing that currently. Right now, the great majority of our resources are being focused on backcountry fire suppression and backcountry logging. Uh, usually under the euphemisms like thinning or fuel reduction. Oftentimes the fires are burning more intensely through areas that were logged um, through thinning or post-fire logging. Uh, Not always, there are always exceptions, but oftentimes. We need to make sure that when the fires reach communities, which they will, that communities are protected, that homes don't burn, that people and their animals can evacuate safely and they have the assistance to do that and the assistance to do the home hardening and annual defensible space pruning to keep their homes safe. And we had things like fire-safe shelters with air filters. That's where the conversation needs to go.
6: Suhusari, so, you spent the early part of your career fighting wildfires and then um, managing them in, in federal agencies. What do you think we should do, given this climate reality that we're experiencing and, and the propensity for it to become even worse in the future? What tools do we have within the federal agencies to better manage and respond to fires?
2: We still do a lot of our firefighting with, as they euphemistically call it boots on the ground. I agree with Dr. Hansen that we need to put a lot of focus, and the state of California as well as the federal agencies are focusing a great deal of their uh, resources on producing defensible, expanding a defensible space around communities. I believe that a lot of the most important work that we do is with communities to uh, help people work on their defensible space around their houses, to provide ingress and egress from subdivisions, to educate the public and local government on where and when com- new communities should be built, where the safest places are. As a whole, we need to. Use all the tools that are available, available and especially the communication tools with the public to get a better understanding of within all people of this, the current situation that it potentially could get worse, and what we all need to do to uh, basically keep communities safe and also protect as much of our very, very valuable and wonderful natural resources. Uh, that we possibly can. Suhusari Husari
6: has a long career in wildfire and public lands management, starting as a seasonal wildlands firefighter and leading to careers in fire management with the National Park Service and Forest Service. She's currently a member of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. Chad Hansen is an ecologist with the John Muir Project and author of Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Thank you both for joining us on Climate One today. Thank you. Thank you.
3: You're listening to
0: a conversation about how to live in an age of megafires. Coming up, a look at the merits and flaws of a program that trains inmates to be firefighters in California.
7: There are rehabilitative elements to it, but not if you're a firefighter while you're being a prisoner.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. We're talking about living in this new era of huge wildfires and how to respond to it. California has experienced several years of record-setting wildfires. A third of the people who fight wildfires in California are inmates. Journalist Jamie Lowe takes us into this world in her new book, Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. These firefighters live in camps outside of prison walls where they train and wait ready to respond to fires.
7: They really look almost like spiritual retreats. They're sort of in these wooded areas. They're in nature. There aren't fences or barbed wire. There's maybe a sign that says state prison. And so it's a very, you know, deceptive kind of sense where you don't know you're actually entering something that's run by cdcr california's correctional department
0: Lowe says the orange clad inmates train and operate similar to a free world forestry crew except they're more closely monitored
7: they're on the ground doing containment lines they're they're basically hacking away at any growth that might set fire they're doing what's arguably some of the most labor intensive and hardest work because they're right there in the smoke. They're on the front lines.
0: Right. Doing the doing the grunt work. Inmate firefighters make up as much as 3% of California's wildland fire crews. Most of the crews are men, but women have been in the program since the early 80s. So tell us about that, that dimension.
7: Sure. So one of the reasons that some incarcerated people will opt to go into this program is that you can get days off of your sentence for serving your time that way. And at some point in the 80s, it was found to be discriminatory that men could do this and women couldn't. And so they opened up these three female camps, Rainbow, Puerto La Cruz, and Malibu. I think there's probably a capacity of about roughly 100 people per camp. So there's only three to 400 women at most at a time. And right now, there are a lot less incarcerated firefighters than there were pre-pandemic.
0: And what's the appeal for inmates, especially women, to fight on a wildland fire crew? You know, what are the perks? And what are the downsides?
7: One of the main appealing factors is that you're not serving your time in state prison, which is... After having read about a lot of the circumstances where you're surrounded by violence, sexual predatory behavior by correctional officers, by other inmates, that you have malnutrition, poor health, that you're basically isolated and far from your family, the idea that you can serve your time in a place that is surrounded by woods and you're not behind barbed wire is very appealing. Mm-hmm. One woman yeah. that I spoke to described seeing her child in state prison in Chowchilla, where the only way they could visit is that her she would put her hand up against the plexiglass and her kid would put his hand against the plexiglass. And that was the closest they came to contact. And when she was at camp, they could hug. You can rent a cabin and spend a night with your family. There's Something that's slightly more humane. And I think that there's, you know, I don't think that women or men, and there are juvenile camps too, I don't think that they're they're necessarily opting to risk their lives. I think they're opting out of a certain kind of dehumanizing torture that we've come to accept as what our prisons and jails are.
0: Right, and then the the downsides are they aware of the you know the potential health risks, other sorts of things like that?
7: You know, I think some people might be, and some people probably aren't. I think that some people go into it thinking this will be an easy way to do time, and I'll just skate through and don't realize how much physical intensity is involved in every aspect of the training of being on call i mean cuz there are sleepless nights where you're getting these false alarms and then you're basically spending 3 4 nights 5 nights in a row where you're not sure what's happening because you're you might go to a call you might not you might be dragged out for a little bit and come back and then that's not even to talk about the intensity of being on the fire line for weeks at a time
0: Sure. Tell us about Shauna Lynn Jones, one of the inmate firefighters you profile in the book.
7: So she was actually where I started. I was home in my mom's kitchen and reading the LA Times, and they had this very small 500 word story about this woman, Shauna Lynn Jones, who had died. She was an incarcerated firefighter who was at Malibu. And I was really struck by these two things. One, I grew up in California and had no idea that there were incarcerated firefighters and that the program existed. And that was really embarrassing for me because I should have known <laughs> and I felt like somebody should have been talking about it, but I didn't know. And the second part of it was that she was really just described in these two short sentences and it was what her crime was and it was that she was from Lancaster, California. I just wanted to know more about her. I felt like I wanted to know more about the program and I wanted to know more about who she was within the program. I wanted to know more about her family and where she came from, how she ended up there, what it was like for her to be a firefighter. I wanted to try and tell her story, even though she had passed away. And maybe because she had, because I felt like I wanted to know. And so maybe other people would too.
0: And she wanted to be a firefighter when she got out, right? Would her training have prepared her for one of those cherished jobs after release as a firefighter?
7: Yeah, she had told her mom, um, she had told several of her friends who she spoke with that she wanted to be in forestry. She wanted to continue the work that she had been learning. She was itching to go out on a fire the whole time she was there and it had been kind of a quiet season. You know, I'm not sure I can answer the question if she would have been prepared because I think that, I don't know. I Like, I don't know the the level of where she wanted to go or what she wanted to do specifically and what she had already done. Um, I feel like it's very possible that she wouldn't have been prepared because I think that fire seasons got much, much more intense, much worse. And that even very seasoned professional free world firefighters sometimes aren't prepared for, what the reality of fire is right now.
0: Well, climate change is making the fires much more fierce, large. You know, Cal Fire is having to redo their models because they're moving faster, more intense. These firestorms, even veteran firefighters are seeing things they've never seen in their career, fueled by low precipitation, high winds, the ferocity of these fires. One of the fire camp commanders told you about all the benefits women gain from working on the fire crew: self-esteem, work ethic, skills, exercise. Did you hear the same from the women you interviewed? Did they view the program as a benefit to them?
7: There was a range of response to that, um, but a lot of the women and many more than I expected really did have some positive takeaways and some, you know, discussions with me about transformation and about how being on a crew really meant that you had to work together. There was the phrase, you know, sister crew that was used often, where it didn't matter what kinds of, you know, arguments or beefs you had with anyone around you. When you were on the fire, you had to work or somebody was going to die. And all of the women I spoke to did have this, like, faint nostalgia for what they achieved and this purpose and the work that they actually put in and what they got back. You know, they all also, you know, would talk about how difficult it was to do all of that and have all that responsibility while being prisoners
0: right they get paid uh, next to nothing 2 to 5 dollars a day plus a dollar for every hour on the fire line you know tell us about the compensation piece of this how this you know this fits into you know uh, the increasing wildfires we're seeing in the west and the economics of it
7: so one aspect of the pay is that it's one of the highest paid jobs within prison industries in california So, it's actually a shockingly low amount when you're comparing it to professional crews, free world crews. But it still is an incredibly attractive job within prison industries, which tells you a lot about prison industries and how that exploits labor. But forestry crews don't make a lot either. And California's had a really hard time recruiting and filling hotshot crews, they make $13.30 an hour. It's shockingly low. That's below minimum. That's like most fast food workers at this point make more. And so they have no health benefits. It's seasonal employees. So they're hired in April, fired in November. And we've seen a lot of big fires come after November, like the Paradise Fire and the Wolseley Fire was after seasonal crews were let go. We have to start rethinking how we're approaching staffing, how we're approaching all of the ways that we look at fire and address fire and manage it, because we can't fight it anymore. It's like it's clearly a reality that's part of California.
0: And California passed a law trying to make it easier for prison firefighters to become professional firefighters, but it apparently was a well intended but not well written law allowing for that pathway from from a prison firefighter. Where does that stand now?
7: I don't know exactly where it stands. I mean, Newsom Governor Newsom signed it into law last September, and the idea was to expedite expungement.
0: Expungement of criminal records so they could get jobs, right.
7: So it actually isn't even expunged. It's a. It's just when employers are looking to hire formerly incarcerated firefighters who do get expedited expungement, they will still see the criminal record. Uh, That's one of the problems with the bill. And okay. so there are several problems that I see. And one of them is that you have to navigate reentry while you're going through a lengthy legal process where you have to apply through a judge a judge has to approve the expedited expungement a da then has the option to appeal the judge's decision so you have to kind of get go through all that you have to retake all the training that you've done you have to take all the tests over and this requires a lot of support it requires a lot of community support you know like most people who come out of prison have to get several jobs. They have to, you know, work immediately. They have to figure out housing. And it's in a world that is very uninhabitable for people with felonies. And so they're navigating all of this legal system. Then you have to get hired by Cal Fire or by a municipal agency. And they, like I said earlier, can see that you have a criminal record. And both of these bureaucracies are notoriously discriminatory. And the head of the Cal Fire Union came out against the bill. And it makes absolutely no sense for a state that is in absolute catastrophe to have trained people who know how to fight fire, who then want to fight fire and have a job doing it and not hire them.
0: You write that California has always had a fire problem now that that problem is a constant crisis because of climate change. So how do you see this playing out as there, these fires in the West are going to stay with us?
7: Going back to the idea that this program is actually a positive program with some parts of it that are actually really useful. I think that it can be folded in or part of the California Conservation Corps where instead of like for charges that actually should not be part of mass incarceration for things that are drug charges or things that are related to mental health or things that are nonviolent, that you have an option to maybe go to a camp, have social services, but also get paid minimum wage and work for California Conservation Corps, be part of a fire training crew, and then ease into a job afterwards if you actually want a job. And not have a felony on your record. It seems like that could be an option where you take CDCR out of the fire camp program and you make it something else entirely and independent. And there are some efforts to do that. The Ventura Training Center is one. And the other thing is that I think within uh, President Biden's infrastructure bill, there's a portion of it that's for a climate corps, a civilian climate corps. And I think that that also could easily be adapted. You know, you could use that as the program that takes over these fire camps and use the funding to run them and pay people and make it something that is a positive. Because I do think that there are rehabilitative elements to it but not if you're a firefighter while you're being a prisoner.
0: Jamie Lowe, author of Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. Thanks for sharing your stories today with us on Climate One.
7: Thank you for having me.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking about how to live in the new age of climate-driven megafires. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency, to hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review, or better yet, telling your friend about our show. It really does help advance and open up the climate conversation that we all need to have. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.